The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. We began our focus on the war in Ukraine in August 2022, and today, incredibly, is our 100th episode on this tragic conflict. As well as bringing you all the latest news today, we'll be asking two big questions. Has much changed in that time? And what happens next? The big news from the front line is that Russia continues its hugely costly and hard to understand attack to capture the town of Avdiivka near Donetsk city. It's already lost so many men and armoured vehicles in the attack that, as at Bakhmut earlier this year, it's had to resort to using expendable troops, in this case Storm Z units made up of convicts and regular soldiers assigned as punishment. In the opinion of British intelligence analysts, Russia now has, quotes, extreme difficulty in generating combat infantry capable of effective offensive operations. Elsewhere, and as if on cue from a listener's question last week, the Ukrainians have established a bridgehead on the south bank of the Dnipro River near Kherson in a daring amphibious operation. And the Ukrainians keep hammering away near Bakhmut and in western Zaporizhia and continue to make marginal gains. We'll discuss the implications of all this and ask whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive can still succeed. But first, let's consider how much has changed over the last 16 months. So what do you think? Well, let's remind ourselves what's happened in that time, and it's a lot. Two major Ukrainian offensives capturing huge swathes of territory in Kharkiv and Kherson blasts, a cynical and ultimately unsuccessful attempt by Russia to target Ukrainian power infrastructure last winter in the hope of freezing the Ukrainians into submission, and a sustained Russian attack on Bakhmut that ultimately gained its objective, but nothing more, and at a cost of tens of thousands of lives, many of them convicts fighting for the late Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner private military company. Let's also not forget the Wagner mutinies that saw disaffected troops get within 100 or so miles of Moscow before a deal was struck that, in our opinion, ultimately cost Prigozhin his life. The other big casualty of the mutiny was, of course, General Sorovakin, or General Armageddon, as he's known, the architect of Russia's rather effective defence lines in eastern Ukraine, 
who was sacked because he apparently knew about the mutiny in advance. On the debit side for Ukraine, its much-anticipated summer counteroffensive, long delayed because the West took too long to provide the necessary weapons, notably main battle tanks, has only made relatively marginal gains in four long months and is yet to achieve its stated objective of severing the land bridge between occupied Crimea and Russia. But on the other hand, Ukraine has managed to win a hugely important naval victory in the Black Sea by targeting Russia's Black Sea fleet with long-range missiles and unmanned drones, forcing it to withdraw from its base in Sevastopol further to the east, and thereby opening up a safe maritime corridor which, last week alone, allowed the export from Ukraine of 700,000 tonnes of grain. So it's mostly a story of unbroken Ukrainian military success, with even the loss of Bakhmut painted by some analysts, like Phil O'Brien, for example, as a strategic victory and that it destroyed so many Russian military assets. But some Western commentators are now suggesting that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has stalled and are asking whether it can ever achieve its stated objectives with winter coming and the West distracted by events in Israel and Gaza. So, Patrick, what do we think about this? Well, it was sort of inevitable, wasn't it, Saul? Um, It's been going on for some weeks. There was a cover uh, of The Economist magazine a couple of weeks back saying that it was time for a rethink and that we should accept that this is going to be a a long-haul war. Well, it already is, isn't it? I mean, I think I said 16 months earlier. It's actually probably 17 months. It's day 610 of this war today, if I calculate that correctly. So I think we've got to face the possibility that it may well be the case that one big objective of the Ukrainian counteroffensive when it was launched is not going to be achieved this winter. That is uh, bringing the main supply routes uh, into the southern battlefield and Crimea, the Russian supply routes, of course, that is, uh, within Ukrainian artillery range. As it's turned out, the Russians had too long to prepare their defenses from a Ukrainian perspective, and they've they've done that pretty well. I mean, they are they have proved pretty good at the admittedly not terribly difficult task of of constructing you know very very tough defenses, and they've also shown themselves surprisingly determined when they're defending them. Um, on the other hand, the offensive has made real progress in the sense of territorial gains, but also, as you said about Bakhmut, Paul, in chewing up Russian manpower and resources that are going to be hard to replace. Now, we all know that there are plenty of males uh, in, in the Russian population, so plenty of cannon fodder available. But I think that a mass call-up still carries big political risk. So generating more manpower is going to be difficult politically for Putin. And I think that's one of the explanations for why they're using these you know, convicts and, and uh, punishment units in what's going on in their offensive. So I think it may well be that we'll be seeing a pause through the winter months while both sides regroup and try and get their strength back. This has been an incredibly exhausting struggle for both sides. But having said all that, the counter-attack is far from over. And we've seen more gains, admittedly marginal ones this week, near Robotinia in uh, western Zaporizhia around Bakhmut. And they've also, as we mentioned earlier, created a firm lodgment on the south bank of the Dnieper, about 30 kilometers east of Kherson, which may well offer possibilities of a breakthrough in the future. One Russian mill blogger has pointed out reporting that uh, Ukrainian sabotage 
and reconnaissance uh, groups from uh, a Ukrainian naval infantry brigade crossed the Dnipro River. This is how they got their lodgment on the uh, on the southern bank. Overwhelmed the Russian troops there, and are now established in the village of Kirinki, which is um, about thirty clicks uh, east of Kherson city, and about two kilometers inland from the actual river. And even though the Russians have launched uh, counterattacks, uh, they're still there, and they've they've managed to create quite a sizable bridgehead. Uh, there haven't been any more attacks with uh, ATACMs, which uh, we reported last week, which is quite a big deal. Uh, we're hearing that the initial attacks on these two Russian-held airfields, I think in one in Lugansk and the other in Budyansk, is it, um, destroyed up to 14 helicopters and, and seriously damaged many more. That's quite a, a big chunk of the Russian air assets. So these helicopters have been been pretty effective against uh Ukrainian ground troops, and this may be something we'll see more of in future. But um, as we were saying, this uh, the, the main news is is this big, hugely costly assault on Avdiivka, which is near Donetsk city. Now the Ukrainians are claiming that they've destroyed almost fifty Russian tanks, over a hundred armored vehicles in a single day. But the attacks go on with these uh, Storm Z units, and like we said, effectively penal battalions. So one analyst, uh, Robert Clark, he said that the Russia's second combined arms army, they've already lost a brigade's worth of troops. And there are local reports of uh, hundreds of Russian corpses littering the hills around the town. According to Clark, this is proof that ordinary Russian troops are no longer willing to engage in offensive operations. What do you think is going on, Saul? Well, it's deja vu, isn't it? Uh, you know, guess what? We're comparing it to, um, like Bakhmut, Avdivka has no strategic value in my view. It's apparently been identified as a target by Valery Gerasimov, the chief of staff, to appease Putin. And, and this is the real alleged purpose, pull Ukrainian reinforcements from elsewhere on the battlefield. Well, that might be happening to a certain extent, but as at Bakhmut, far the majority of casualties are Russian. And we're already seeing some of the consequences of this brutal and senseless approach to war. According to the independent Russian news outlet Astra, hundreds of Russian soldiers may have mutinied in recent weeks as the Russian army accumulates huge losses in offensives in Avdivka and Kupiansk. At least 173 are reported to have been detained for refusing orders. And this, according to Astra, may be the tip of the iceberg. How does Astra know? Because it's been contacted by many of the families of those who've been detained. So all of this leaves us the question of what happens next. The key, of course, is that the West does not get too distracted by the war in Gaza. And that's exactly the point that John Healy, the Labour Shadow Defence Secretary, was making this week when he urged the government to maintain its focus on supporting Ukraine, even as international and press attention turns to the Israel-Hamas conflict. Healy said that he was proud of the UK's leadership on Ukraine, but added, we must work to maintain this leadership and accelerate support, and I fear the UK momentum is flagging. As evidence, he cited the fact that there'd been no Ukraine statement from Defence Secretary Grant Shapps since he was appointed in August. Well, this provoked a response from James Heapy, who's Minister of State for Defence, who said that the UK was committed to supporting both Israel and Ukraine and will not lose focus on the latter, despite the situation in the Middle East. Well, encouraging words there, Patrick, but let's hope he's right. Another tiny bit of encouraging news for Ukraine is that its pilots are about to begin training on F-16s, 
though how long it will be before these planes can be deployed on the battlefield is another matter. Quite a few months, I would imagine. So the big question, I think, Patrick, is where do you think we might be in 12 months' time? Uh, well, the old crystal ball seems to have clouded up. Uh, I've got a bit of a malfunction on it right now. And I don't think I'd like to stick my neck up. But I would say a couple of things. First, on those F-16s, I think we shouldn't invest too much hope in them making a dramatic difference to Ukraine's fortunes. We've seen a lot of new weapons, haven't we, over the course of this this war arriving on the battlefield, which each time have been hailed as game changers. And, and we've got to put our hands up and say we've been as guilty as anyone of that. Think about it. High Mars, uh, then the arrival of the, or the announcement about the Western main battle tanks, Storm Shadow, cruise missiles, the French scalps, then ATACMs. I think the lesson is that on their own, these weapons, formidable though they might be, can't actually bring about the decisive shift in Ukraine's favor that we might hope for. However, taken together, they do obviously have a, have a very, very significant effect. They don't just boost Ukraine's capacity, but they increase its options, enabling them to put all these assets together in, in devastating combinations. And that's something that we've seen that they're able to do very effectively. And it must be noted without actually provoking Russia into meaningful escalations of the sort that the sort of doom mongers predicted the people who are opposed to sending this kit to Ukraine. So you just think about it. So well, on that front, we don't hear much anymore of the old nuclear rhetoric, do we? So I think we'll see a lull. As I said both earlier, both sides are exhausted and they'll want to conserve and build up their armories during the winter months. And then we can look forward to a Ukrainian offensive in the spring. But I think the real game changer is likely to be in the political sphere and of course particularly in Moscow we've got elections coming up next March now do the group around Putin really want him to carry on given uh, that this was his decision this disastrous decision to go to war in the first place and then the endless doubling down that's followed which has led to real negative consequences for them and for Russia I think what happens next is as likely to be decided by murky plots in Kremlin corridors as it is on the battlefield. Yeah, and one point to add to that, Patrick, excellent analysis, by the way, is that the key really for Ukraine, I mean, it can't control what happens in Moscow, and you may well be right. The power behind the throne, the powers behind the throne may decide that it's time for Putin to go. Because let's make the broad point here. The position isn't going to get any stronger for Moscow. The sanctions are going to continue to bite. It's struggling to get weapons from here, there, and everywhere. North Korea is its biggest supplier of of artillery ammunition, so we hear. I mean, really, it's scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of its allies, and its economy will only get weaker. So the key, really, for Ukraine, certainly not to lose this war, and hopefully to claw back a lot more of its territory, is that the West continues its support. And there is a danger, of course, that it will be distracted by Gaza. And as we've been saying for months, there's a danger that 
a change of president in the United States is going to tip the balance too. So let's hope there's uh, more ground made either over the winter. I'm not entirely convinced that things will pause over the winter, Patrick. We're hearing from uh, most of our Ukrainian sources, certainly the senior commanders, that uh, they will continue the fight and they will continue to try and make gains. They've only used their attackums once. Apparently, they were given about 20 attackums. They've used a handful of them. So they are going to husband those and, and deploy them elsewhere. And they may get more attackums, of course, including the longer range ones. So we'll have to keep our eye on all of that. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Welcome back. Saul mentioned a new protection system for Israeli armor last week. Well, Nia Kovlikovsky from Tel Aviv has helpfully sent us a link to a YouTube video which gives all the details. It's known as the Trophy Active Protection System. It was built by Israeli defense company Raphael, and it uses a sophisticated 360 degrees radar to identify threats such as rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, and other anti tank missiles and take them out automatically. It's quite an astonishing bit of kit. So to find it, go to YouTube and type in Raphael Trophy Active Protection System. So our first email is from Philip. Uh, He says, I just caught up with your podcast about your trip to Ukraine. I've had one visit already this year and I'm planning to go again in December. So we're assuming Philip is British. I've been hosting Ukrainian women since July last year and wanted to see her family and flat in Kharkiv. As you said, there is a strange sense of normalcy and life goes on. There are, however, odd reminders, particularly in Kharkiv with trenches by the side of the road, tank traps waiting to be rolled out. The metro in the city is now free as it is used as a shelter and the barriers would cause delay. Sadly, he goes on to say, corruption is still a fact of life. Although credit cards are widely accepted, many people pay cash for services. My friend wanted to see a doctor for a checkup, so we just went to the local hospital and asked if the doctor was free and paid her cash for almost instant service. It's also difficult to show how big a country it is. We took two overnight sleeper trains from Kiev to Kharkiv and Kharkiv to Warsaw. Uh, that must have been a hell of a journey, Patrick. Kharkiv to Warsaw. <laughs> we only did the, you know, the, the relatively mini journey between, between Kiev and Lviv, and that was bad enough. So I, I feel for you. I have to say, 
the women conductors not to be troubled with, but also give great service with tea and snacks. Well, we noticed that too. During those long trips, you don't have a choice in not speaking with the other travelers. You share food, drinks, and stories. We were told by one woman that she has been sending food, clothes, and cigarettes to her son on the battlefield not something we hear about in our media and perhaps just a concerned mother. Uh, He goes on to say that he was surprised how many people spoke against Zelensky and he's not as popular as the West may think. And in his view, he says uh, if they do hold an election, because there has been talk about this, about maybe it's time to have an election, uh, you know, to give a sort of mandate, if you like, to Zelensky at a sort of deep point in the war, um, which is something that, you know, it's worth discussing at a future program, I think. And Philip says he's not sure that uh, if that came to pass, that uh, his victory would be as comfortable as we might think in the West. He says there are stories of corruption in government still, despite the, um, you know, much vaunted campaign against uh, corrupt practices. And he says that the perception is that many of the people around Zelensky are rich powerful men. Uh, The media is not as free as it is here. And there's also people speculating uh, that when the war is finally over, would the government actually uh, give up power willingly? What do you make of all that? So, I mean, it's true that, you know, the people we spoke to were, you know, very, very much pro-Zelensky, but we were in in Kiev and uh, Lviv. Maybe it's the case that the picture changes the further east you go. Yeah, and we we didn't hear the contrary voice. I, I don't entirely agree with Philip. I mean, you know, he has his opinion. and He's spoken to people, of course, further east than we were, which is closer to the war zone, where naturally you're more affected by by the war. So that will give him a different perspective. But I think you an analogy would be, is it likely that Churchill would have been turned out of power during the war as opposed to after the war? And I think it's very, very unlikely, frankly. What happens after the conflict is over is a different matter. And there may be some chickens coming home to roost then. But he's undoubtedly been an effective war leader, uh, recognized by the vast majority of the population, I would suggest, Patrick. And I don't think there's any danger that he would be turned out of power in a popular uh, election while the country is still fighting for its life. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, this is a kind of snapshot. I'm not um, saying that that these observations are not valid. But, you know, I think the the general view when you talk to people we know who are, whose business it is, journalists, to actually gauge these things, they thus far haven't detected any real cracks in support for Zelensky. And I, I doubt that that is going to happen in the near future. It does actually go on to say something interesting about we were saying how few uniforms we saw on the street and indeed, you know, indications of, of men with injuries. We didn't see any limbless males walking around the place. And um, Philip says that he also noticed that there weren't any obviously injured soldiers on the streets where he was, even though there were quite a few uniforms. And he's wondering, are they actually kept out of public view? Well, our producer, James, had something to say about this, didn't he? Yeah, James uh, lives in Holland, as we've probably mentioned before on the podcast, and nearly every time he gets the train to The Hague, he told us, he sees injured Ukrainian servicemen with their families, uh, and his assumption is they're being treated at medical facilities there. Now, we've also heard uh, stories that many Ukrainian servicemen are being treated in the US as well, and I suspect other European countries. So that might explain the absence of some of these uh, limbless 
former Ukrainian servicemen. But certainly there have been an enormous number of casualties. I think one recent estimate is that up, up to 50,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers have had life-changing injuries as a result of the fighting, which is a sort of horrific statistic. But are they deliberately being kept off the street? No, I'm not, I'm not buying that, I'm afraid. Simon wonders uh, how politically weak uh, Putin actually is at this moment. Uh, he goes back to uh, what was said at the time of the Wagner mutiny, and I think said by ourselves, which was that you know he Putin had been dramatically weakened by that whole episode. But Simon goes on to say Putin's position in power seems secure, despite you know the military failure in Ukraine, huge losses both on the battlefield and as a result of economic sanctions. And in his view, he doesn't. Uh, think he's actually been weakened domestically at all in Russia. Would you go along with that, Saul? No, I'd say he has been weakened domestically. Um, if you look at the history of Russia, you hold on to power until you no longer hold on to power. So it's often unclear when there's a coup, and that's the favoured way of removing people, frankly, from positions of power during Russian history. Uh, but it happens very suddenly, and it usually happens from the inside. So that you know, our take on this, as we've already mentioned on the podcast today, is that that's the most likely way for him to be toppled. It's true that a popular vote is unlikely to go against him, mainly because they have complete control over the media and have actually convinced a lot of Russians, we have to uh, acknowledge, that the, the war is a good thing or, or a necessary uh, evil. The last point that Simon uh, asked is, what will it take? Could he even survive Ukraine taking back Crimea? I really do think that would be a tipping point. Of course, it could be a tipping point in a lot of other ways too, um, which is why that may be you know, the, the final negotiating piece uh, when negotiations eventually happen. Which, by the way, they will happen. I mean, a lot of people saying to us, well, wars always end in negotiation. Well, they do. I mean, of course it's true. I mean, virtually all wars do. So there will be a negotiation at some point. But again, as we've also said, it's a question of Ukraine being in, in the strongest position to negotiate, to get back as much of its territory as it can. Andrew Stokes from Hong Kong takes us back to a subject which pops up virtually every week now in the podcast, and that is our pronunciation. Now, Andrew is a linguist, he says, in various capacities, is a st student, teacher, writer, publisher, and has been for over 40 years. So he obviously knows what he's talking about. And he says, I'd like to commend you. Now, this is a rare compliment, uh, both on your practical <laughs> and workmanlike pronunciation of the names of the people and places which come up on the pod. Now, Andrew says there should be just two rules for this. If there's a generally accepted form and pronunciation of a name in English, use that. So Rome, not Roma. Bangkok, not Krungthep. Afghanistan, he says, without clearing your throat in the middle, Afghanistan. Uh, Moscow, uh, we don't say Moskva. And he said, I would suggest Kiev, like chicken Kiev, in the traditional way. And attempting to, the, uh, attempting to pronounce these names like a native, he says, is both pretentious <laughs> and doomed to failure. Well, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, so he says, if there's no accepted way of saying it, then pronounce the name in the most ex accessible way for your audience of English speakers. So do you remember we went back to that that pronunciation that we were picked up on the pronunciation of Robert Fico? We were calling him Robert Fico, and apparently it's Robert, what is it, Robert Fitzo, is it? He says, as your listeners probably don't have a mastery of Slovak phonology or a detailed knowledge of the Slovak political landscape, you, you are absolutely right, he says, to pronounce Robert Fico's name in the way that will be most readily recognised. What do you think, 
I just uh, hilarious. I mean, I could almost have written that myself, Patrick. I promise you, I did not. That that is a genuine <laughs> message from Andrew, and it's very funny because he, he he signs off with a couple of other funny comments. Ignore the pedants, posers, and show-offs, or to put it another way, keep up the great British tradition of mangling foreign languages. We'll do our best, Andrew, or at least I will. Um, pa- Patrick is just yeah. I am afraid I I find myself slipping into as he says, this sort of rather pretentious way of sounding as if I. I speak the language uh, that I'm <laughs> fluent in mul- multiple Slavic languages. But on that thing about uh, this great British tradition of mangling foreign languages, I've got a, a friend whose uh, father was determined not to pronounce French place names as the French would. So he insisted on saying Marseilles instead of Marseille, Lions instead of Lyon, etc. <laughs> my, my friend thought this was fair enough. After all, we, we do say Paris, don't we? Not Paris. But he did draw the line when his father referred to Calais as Callus. <laughs> okay, we've got a question here from Caroline Passler in Belgium. I've just listened to the latest episode, that's 98, so that's a couple ago, and with reference to the question by Tom from Denmark about what happened just before the invasion, uh, she wanted to mention a book she's reading by the Ukrainian historian Sergei Plokhy, The Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History, published this year. Very enlightening and, of course, topical. It also gives valuable recent historical context and may be of interest to other listeners and yourselves, but you probably know about it. We do know about it. I, I've read it. It's excellent. Sergei Plocky is probably best known for writing about Chernobyl, um, a book that was later turned into the very, very good drama about the Chernobyl uh, explosion in the, in the 1980s, which, of course, is... Back in the news, of course, since Chernobyl was taken over by the Russians briefly during the initial invasion. Um, But thanks so much for that, Caroline. Good suggestion. Okay. Now, we often get people ask uh, for support, for help they're giving to Ukraine. And we've got one here from Charlie Graham saying that uh, I'm writing to say that I'll be volunteering for the first time with For Ukraine, a charity that delivers medical supplies and humanitarian aid to people affected by the conflict. He's going to be driving out to Ukraine from UK in a convoy with aid and supplies soon. And he's saying he's he's trying to raise money to help pay for logistics and buy supplies. And this is particularly for orphanages that the charity has been supporting. And these orphanages are reliant on outside supplies to keep going, providing clothing, food, and caring for the children. And he's asking for a shout out, basically, for his Just Giving page, which we're happy to do. And it is www.justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash Charlie Ukraine. So go to the Just Giving page, which is a brilliant uh, platform, isn't it, Saul? And then slash crowdfunding slash Charlie Ukraine. Happy to do that, Charlie. It is. I'm using it myself. I won't bore the listeners with my paddle, which is starting next Monday. But do think of me, actually, because it's going to be utterly exhausting. Three days on the water um, and all for the very good cause of raising money for SAFA. That's a British Armed Forces charity. But I don't want to intrude on uh, Charlie's space. Wonderful stuff you're doing, Charlie. Very best of luck with it. And we hope that one or two of our listeners contribute to your Just Giving page. There's another uh, related email from Mindegas in Brussels uh, and also Vilnius, so presumably he moves between the two. Having heard a few questions by listeners from all over the world on on helping the Ukrainian cause, I wanted to let everyone know about the Blue Yellow. That's blue slash yellow, an organization with nearly 10 years of experience in providing non-lethal kit to the Ukrainian defenders. It's an international team based in Lithuania. And if you're interested, you can find it at www.blue.com hyphen yellow 
dot it slash about slash us slash i hope you got all of that um but do just put in blue yellow and i'm sure you'll find it okay that's all for this week do join us on wednesday when roger morehouse uh and i will be talking about gaza and then again on friday when we'll still be away and so it'll be roger myself in the chair that's it for now thanks a lot goodbye <laughs>